Our Father, as we, uh, as we just sang this morning in that last song, that phrase really stood out to me about this holy war that is being waged within us. Um, we know, Lord, that there is a war for souls all around the world. For those, uh, God, each of us who have been born into sin and with the guilt and consequence that comes with it, and yet, by your grace, you've sent your Son that any and all can look to you and be forgiven and cleansed, justified by the sacrifice of Christ received through faith. And so, Lord, we, uh, we recognize that that war is, a, is afoot, and we recognize even being safely in the family of God, there is still, still a war for our souls in terms of battles for temptation and believing that the gospel is good and that discipleship is right. And so I pray, Lord, as we turn to your word now, that we would see that you have equipped us for this battle, um, the battle for lost souls and the battle within our own soul. So may we recognize this holy war, but recognize also that you have given us power through the weapons of the Holy Spirit. And we look to you now to teach us about these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I think we live in a, a day and age that is really longing for good leadership. And at the same time, I think we live in a culture that has a very polarized idea of what good leadership is. Uh, for example, we regularly and for a long time now have uh, witnessed constant corruption in leadership. And I think the public's response to this has been a rise in populist presidents and prime ministers. Uh, we have witnessed in the last decade the Arab Spring. Uh, at the same time, internationally, we see the ongoing battle for Brexit, right, in Europe. Uh, we have seen steadily narcissism and cronyism at the top of nations and of companies and corporations. And at the same time, in contrast to that, we see continued chaos where there is no good leadership recognized. Look at what's happening in Venezuela right now. So I think we live in a time uh, which, sadly, is similar to all times, where a real quality leadership is something that is longed for. Leadership that's not self-serving. Leadership that is <clears throat> rather self-sacrificing. Leadership that's effective, but not heavy-handed. And to be honest, it seems elusive in the world today. I think, unfortunately, what we see is that very often those who aspire to positions of leadership do so in order to take advantage of others. And those who would be very good leaders very often shrink back from the call and the mantle of leadership because of the brutal cost of today's skeptical culture. Um, and today, as we look at this passage, we find even the Apostle Paul, a man called out of ordinary fellows to be the apostle to the Gentiles, by God himself, through a remarkable vision, and even Paul finds himself criticized and having to defend his leadership. 
And as he does so, I think what he kind of leaves behind for us some principles and some pictures as to the makings of a good leader and also some advice on how a good leader uh, survives the onslaught of inevitable criticism. So again, let's, let's look at sort of the historical context. What's bringing this up? Um, Paul's the target of criticism. We've already noted that false apostles have moved into Corinth behind him and behind his ministry partners. And they have taken steady aim at the Apostle Paul because they're trying to poach in his area of ministry. Uh, they're even claiming some of his success as their own. And their tactics have been pretty clear. Uh, accuse him of things, discredit him, call him a zealot, call him crazy, call him incapable, whatever fits. Uh, They've levied lots of accusations at him. We'll see some of them here in the text, but all of them are challenging his legitimacy as an apostolic authority of the day. In other words, if they can undermine his authority, they can take his ministry. And that's their tactics here. And so Paul finds himself in a very awkward situation of having to defend one's leadership, one's ministry, one's authority. And, uh, and he's trying to do this without maybe looking self-centered or self-serving uh, or by way of giving any ammunition to his accusers. And this is actually difficult to do. If you have ever found yourself uh, sort of with an accusation or criticism, particularly about your authority, it's very difficult to defend yourself without putting on display the very kinds of things you're being accused of. For example... You're argumentative. Am not. How, how do you respond to that? Oh, you're an authoritarian leader. No, I'm not. Sit down. Let's talk about it. Right? You're an insecure leader. <gasps> really? You think so? There's almost no good way to respond to leadership challenges without sort of looking the part that you're being accused of. And, uh, and so Paul here is kind of facing this same sort of thing as he's trying to defend himself against the criticism of these false apostles. It's a bit of a high wire act to defend but not fall right into the accusation itself. And once again, as he does it, I think he shows us these are the makings of a good leader. And this is how leaders survive unremitting criticism. So look with me in chapter 10, verse 1. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for the building you up rather than the tearing you down, I'll not be ashamed of it. I do not want to be seen to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. 
Such people should recognize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Boy, there's all kinds of sting and vigor here, isn't there? First of all, um, let's just identify some of the criticisms that are laid out. Many of them are very obvious because they're put in parentheses. And there's a couple others that are less explicit, but nevertheless very observably there. First of all, in verse 1, we get timid. He's timid in person, but bold in his letters. Down in verse 11, we get his letters are weighty and forceful, uh, but in person, unimpressive. And so you might say the word on the street for the Apostle Paul is something like, that guy is all bark and no bite. He, he just doesn't live up to his reputation. I was reading over this this week, and it reminded me of a story in my own life where years ago, back when I lived in Washington State, I had just moved up from college from Los Angeles, and I had left behind a really uh, great group of godly brothers that I was just really close with, and I was pretty lonely coming to town, and my prayer at the time was, God, would you provide me with a good friend, a good Christian friend that would be an encouragement to me. And so I met this guy named Josh Phillips, and we got to know each other, and our friendship took off right away. And, and he was, it was interesting. He was just leaving uh, Cannon Beach, Ecola, coming back home, and he was praying the same thing, that God would give him a good Christian friend. So we met up quickly and started a really important friendship for each of us where we discipled and encouraged one another in the Lord. And uh, anyways, his sister was coming to town, and so he was going to introduce us. And so I, I'll, we met like right in the aisle of the church uh, that we were going to at the time. And here comes Josh with his sister, Heather. And he says, Heather, this is Eric. Eric, this is Heather. And she says, oh, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> I'm like, what do I say to that? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I thought I'd be taller too. It's a steady disappointment in my life. What do, you, what do you want from me? Tiptoes? You know, it was a weird moment. Thought you'd be taller. Okay? Uh, this, this is the kind of thing that's being lobbed at Paul here. You, your real actual presence doesn't match your reputation. And, uh, and then there's another one that's kind of lobbed at him here, verses 2 and 3. He's basically criticized against the world's standards, against the tactics and the leadership styles of the world. And he just doesn't live up to their expectations, so they criticize him by it. And we'll unpack that in a little bit. But I think in truth, one of the things that's just fair to say about the Apostle Paul, you might say that Paul's a bit of a nerd. If I can say that on a Sunday morning without being struck by lightning, you know. I got away with it first service. He's unimpressive in his appearance. Small in stature by sort of traditional reports. Uh, Probably didn't wear the latest, you know, tunic trends of the day. He had some kind of ongoing physical malady, and maybe that was conspicuous. I don't know. Uh, Apparently, he wasn't a very dynamic speaker. A great man, great mind, but apparently not easy on the ears. In fact, and you'll... This is a little hard to believe, but truthfully, Paul literally talked one guy to death. I mean literally, not like I'm using the word literally like everybody else is using the word literally. He literally talked the man to death. His name was Eutychus. And if you turn in your Bibles to Acts 20, I'm going to look at it with you because it's funny. (laughs) Let me set the scene as Acts does. Acts 20, verse 8. 
There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Doesn't that sound like the beginning of a riddle or something? (laughs) Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. (laughs) When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. (laughs) Paul talked the man to death, right? Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. If I was ever going to challenge a word in Scripture, I might challenge that last word there, comforted. (laughs) Annoyed, fatigued, I don't know, what else? This is a funny passage to me because Paul's already killed this guy (laughs) by talking him into a stupor. He then revives him. They go upstairs for a nutrition break, and a common, decent person would probably go, I've probably said enough. I think my time's over. But not Paul. No, we're going till daylight. So I remind you of that if you think my sermons are long or you start nodding. (laughs) Somebody elbows you and says, hey, Eutychus, you know what they're talking about. Even the Apostle Peter, a contemporary of Paul, says of him in his writings, Hey, some of the things that Paul talks about are hard to understand. I bring this up not just for comedic relief here, but also to just paint the picture that there's an element of truth to the criticism that is levied against Paul. As there usually is an element of truth to criticism that's levied against any of us, usually. He's more impressive in his written remarks than in his personal affect and appearance. Even his writing is said to be difficult. Uh, This is a particular knock against him, especially in the culture of Corinth. We've talked about this a little bit. Corinth really prized rhetoric and a a whole uh, sort of uh, experience of what they called sophistry. Uh, This was a practice of the day, almost like today's TED Talks or something like that. There was a circuit of good communicators and debaters. You could actually hire their services to convince people for you. Uh, You could even do it for entertainment, whatever. And Paul would not be invited on the circuit, basically. He doesn't have these same kind of rhetorical, polished skills in the same manner, that same celebrity, sophist swagger that the Corinthians really admired. And so what he does, Paul, as he gets this criticism, is he basically takes issue with the criteria that they're using to evaluate him. And in his rebuttal, I think he shows us what a good Christian leader is supposed to be like. First of all, Christian leadership is humble and gentle. That's how he starts his rebuttal. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Um, As ministers and By the way, you are all ministers. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and you have been called the priesthood of believers. The priests are not here. The priests are here. So as ministers, as leaders, as those who have been entrusted with having an influence for the gospel and the lives of others, we are to do this in a manner of humility and gentleness. I'm reminded of the words of my friend Dick Kyes. He says that no one who walks with God is prideful. 
No one who walks with God is prideful. And if we think about this, how could it be any different? If our ministry is to lead people to Christ and make disciples of Christ, then of course we who are Christians claiming to be followers of Christ would do so in the manner of Christ, right? Dallas Willard says the same thing in his book titled The Allure of Gentleness. And that is why our apologetic needs to be characterized by gentleness. Like Jesus, we are reaching out in love in a humble spirit with no coercion. The only way to accomplish that is to present our defense gently as help offered in love in the manner of Jesus. Now, some people might sort of argue back and say, hey, wait a minute, Uh, Jesus got steamed at times, right? He turned over the money changers' tables in the temple. He basically snapped them out of there with a whip. He had some pretty harsh words reserved for the Pharisees. But it seems to me that a thorough study of the ministry of Jesus reveals that he was gentle towards sinners moving towards repentance, but that his anger and the sharp side of his ministry were reserved for religious elites who put up obstacles for would-be followers. Also, I think we have to rightly understand what humility and gentleness are, because I think we, we mis, kind of misunderstand that or, or think about those improperly today. Humility and gentleness are not synonyms for weakness. They're not synonyms for weakness. Rather, they are examples of controlled strength. Humility, uh, humility and gentleness are examples of controlled strength. Let me illustrate this way. If I'm holding, let's say I'm holding an egg or a baby chick or a butterfly, something like this, the manner that I'm holding it is going to be very careful, right? Very gentle because I'm trying not to uh, bring any force or undue strength upon this creature or this thing that I would harm it. That is not weakness. All the strength is there, but it is controlled strength that is gentle with it in order to protect it and care for it properly. Uh, If we gave something to a little child, a chick or a butterfly or whatever, we're all kind of hovering around. You You ever watch the little kid who for the first time is allowed to hold his baby sister? You know, don't watch the kid. Watch the room. Everybody's like, oh, you know, here, uh, the head, you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, And it's there because we see weakness in this child. Weakness is scary. But humility and gentleness, these are controlled strength. They're reassuring. And that's what uh, Paul uh, appeals to here. Also, I think humility and gentleness... They are not, neither are they an abandonment of the truth. They're still willing to confront, address, argue with, even debate, demolish arguments, as Paul goes on to say. The, the fact is that it is the loving thing to do to tell people the truth, even if it's hard. But of course, it is our tone and our manner and our disposition that will have everything to do with how it is received. Peter talks about this in chapter 3 of his epistle. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with power and swagger. No. Right? Gentleness. Gentleness and respect. 
my mom had a little wooden plaque on the wall right above the range stove in our kitchen, the old proverb, a soft answer turneth away wrath. And I, I still see that in my mind's eye when I travel back in my mind to our kitchen growing up. She even had it in the authorized version, right, to bring it home for her. <laughs> Secondly, Christian leadership follows Christ and not culture. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Uh, that's quite a second step for his uh, letter here, right? It began in humility and gentleness, and now we're talking about warfare, weapons, and demolishing arguments. It almost seems paradoxical. How is it that, that this is being laid out in such a fashion? The reality is that for Paul, truth is not sacrificed at the altar of love. And they are not opposed to one another. Truth is the loving thing. Truth is the loving thing. If I go into a clinic with a skin rash all over my body and say, you know, I think I have a problem. Might be leprosy. That's my real concern. What do you think, doc? And if the doc says, yeah, you got something bad in his mind, but outwardly goes, just put some aloe on it. That magical sauce. You'll be fine, right? Just put some aloe on it. You're good. Go home. Hug your kids. See your church family. Have a nice day. Has that doctor loved me? No, they're, they're guilty of ministry malpractice or of, of, of uh, medicine malpractice. And the same thing as Christians, when we don't do that in the lives of others, we're guilty of ministry malpractice when we spare the truth from them. It is not the loving thing to do. One of the other things that I think is a little difficult about this part of the text is that there really are two audiences here at the same time. There's the Corinthian church at large, and then within the church there are these false apostles, right? And so Paul is kind of basically addressing one, of, one part of the audience while he addresses the whole. And actually, you and I do this all the time, or at least we do it all the time in our family. Uh, it sounds something like this. Well, somebody didn't take the trash out. Somebody ate the last cookie. That was made for me for my birthday last week. And there is a somebody, and that really happened. And that somebody <laughs> knows who they are, right? And Paul is speaking the same way here to this Corinthian church about these false apostles. He's warning them, and he know, they know what he's warning them about. This is his way of saying, don't make me pull the car over, right? I'm coming to visit. And we're going to speak some truth. And if I've got to be bold with you, I'll be bold with you. So he is actually lovingly confronting them, even though it is with uh, a whole lot of truth. And Paul makes it very clear throughout this passage here that Christians do not set out to accomplish the mission of God by the methods of the world. We follow Christ and not culture. In the Corinthian sort of cultural tactics uh, were something like this. Personal charisma. Verbal rhetoric over sound doctrine. 
manipulation and persuasion over genuine heart change produced by the Holy Spirit. Power and swagger over humility and gentleness. Human words over God's words. And so that's sort of what's going on here. And as you know, not only do individuals fall into these kinds of traps, but whole churches fall into these traps today. They're sort of enamored of, we're going to do ministry different. We're going to adopt this different style. And usually it's sort of wrapped around the idea of, we want to be relevant. Whenever you hear that word, I just put your antenna up and watch. I'll give you six examples of different kinds of churches who are doing this right now. First of all, there's the progressive church, if you've heard that phrase. It's basically the church that says, we're going to water down the truth, we're going to water down our message, and we're just going to try to be easy on the ears and gentle for everybody. Relevant. Or there's the political church, which usually is people who have the best of intentions and they're tired of seeing difficulties going around the culture and they want to do something about it. The problem is they hijack the church and make the church an instrument of social change instead of a ministry that preaches the gospel and makes disciples. So there's the progressive church, the political church, and this other one, this is my own word, it's probably a bad one, but the picketing church. You know what I'm talking about. This is a church that thinks it's their spiritual gift to tell everybody else they're wrong and to do it in a high and mighty fashion. Then there's the justice-oriented church. Again, well-intentioned, the problem is they have mistaken compassion for the gospel and for evangelism. The prosperity gospel church. Instead of seeing ourselves as those who worship God and looking to be used by God, they simply look to use God to feather their own nest and to become healthy, wealthy, and wise. Lastly, there's the LGBTQ affirming church. This church trying to fit into the world and not be so difficult or have any sharp edges. Once again, we're going to be relevant. And all of these, these six examples that I've given here are different kinds of churches who have wrongly adopted the methods of the world to accomplish the mission of God, usually in the name of relevance. And they model themselves after cultural values instead of after biblical values. And usually what they're trying to do is simply take the sharp edges of, off of the church and of its message. And let me tell you something. The word of God is sharp. The Bible refers to itself, to its own word, as a sword meant to cut to the hearts of men and women. And if we try to take the sharp edges off of the word and off of the ministry of the church, you're going to remove its distinctiveness. And you're going to lose what it is in its essence. What's really fascinating, too, is actually as you study this, that the mainline church, particularly in America right now, is in decline. This is the church probably most guilty of utilizing many of these kinds of tactics. And I think the world simply looks at it and says, well, if you're not going to be any different, you know, if you're just trying to make yourself look as worldly as possible and as easy on the ears and with as few edges and as few demands as possible, then kind of what's the point? I can stay home. I got games to watch, right? Why am I going to church? God means to transform our lives. There's the old expression that you win them to what you win them with. And so I don't want to make any, I don't want there to be any mistake about it. The church of God is entrusted with a countercultural message and a countercultural method. 
Paul acknowledges here too that we are engaged in a battle. I think this is interesting. In fact, you start the text, you go, well, you started with gentleness and humility, and now we're talking about battles and warfare and weapons, and this seems to be a little disjointed. I think it's important to recognize Paul is writing to actually a military community. These are, these are a bunch of veterans that are sort of retired and have settled in Corinth as a Roman colony. So what he's doing is speaking their language, okay? He's saying this in ways that they'll grasp and appreciate. We are in a battle for the souls of mankind. We are in a battle about the truth of the way the world is and what God's plan is for it and how mankind is reconciled to God. We are in a fight for souls, but our weapons are not the weapons of the world. So that's our next point. Christians use spiritual weapons. Now, if I could express a little, if Paul were here, I, I could, and I could express a little disappointment with him, I would say, Paul, I don't, you're making a great point here, and then, and then I don't understand you haven't listed the weapons for us. What are they, please? I wish they were enumerated here. They're not, not here. But he does list them in his other writings, and so I'm going to kind of grab from those other places, particularly from Ephesians, where he talks about some of the spiritual weapons that God entrusts to us. First of all, there is the gospel itself. The gospel itself, which confronts mankind with their true condition and the way of things. It shows us all that we have started in a condition of guilt. That's our default position, and we need to be reconciled to a holy God. And I think sometimes we can look at the gospel and say, you know, this thing is a little old, it's a little dusty, a little outdated. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of others. Secondly, there is the word, the word of God. The word, of, again, as we look at the scriptures, not only is it described as a sword, but it's also described as living and active. The word of God itself is not deity, but it is imbued with divine power. We could probably go around the room and have conversations where many of you could say, this was the time when I was struggling, I was crying out to the Lord and spending time in his word, and God's word spoke to me. And it changed my life, changed the course of my life, or ministered to me in a moment the encouragement that I needed. I could give you several stories that, to that effect. And if you've never experienced that, I want to tell you, you are missing out on one of life's greatest joys and most intoxicating pursuits. The word of God is powerful. So we have the gospel as a tool, the word of God as a tool. Discipleship itself is a tool or a spiritual weapon here. And that is not just the begrudging obedience of an elite few, like living in a monastery or a convent. Discipleship is a way that God, who is the author of life, gradually reorients our life and designs us and puts us back to the way that we were originally meant to be. Discipleship gives us our lives back, the reintegration of a life that has become disintegrated through sin. So there's the gospel, the word, discipleship, and prayer. The fact that we have the privilege to speak to Almighty God, that the creator of the world cares what is on your heart and that he would hear you and that in some way that our prayers would move the hands of God, that's amazing. And finally, and not at all least of all, the Holy Spirit of God. Hard to call this one a, a spiritual weapon that we get to manipulate, right? The Spirit does what He will. I would just simply remind us that the Spirit of God is Almighty God, not God's kid brother. God, the Holy Spirit, 
changes people's lives. And so I want to remind you of that power that is available and at work. And so these are the weapons that God has equipped us with for the warfare of souls and for the kingdom of God. And they are not weak or anemic weapons. They demolish strongholds. As Paul says, they demolish strongholds. When we utilize these spiritual weapons, we're not just throwing pebbles at a problem. We are throwing bombs at the problem. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And once again, I think we see here that as Paul objects to the criteria that he's being evaluated against in his leadership, he shows he's not accepted the tactics of the world. Uh, He is, in fact, retaliating, citing the powerful tools of God, and these are all tools imbued with divine power. Thirdly here, Christian leadership strives to be fruitful, not flashy. He says, you're judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I'll not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, he's unimpressive and speaking, his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in action when we are present. And so the next sort of piece of false criteria that Paul confronts here is the, these false apostles' confidence, their swagger, their big boasts. As they're going around claiming, well, we're in Christ, Paul is saying, we are too. It's not the loudness of your claim that makes it right. Look at the real nature of things here. And I think what Paul says at this point is maybe subtle, but it's incredibly powerful too. The point he makes is that there is no hierarchy in the body of Christ. In other words, a pastor, an elder, man, woman, child, older saint, infant, educated, athletic, poor, wealthy. No one has any more access to God or security in his family than anyone else. We are either secure in Christ or rightfully insecure outside of Christ. So Paul is saying, you can, you can claim to be in Christ as loud as you want. We are too. We're in Christ as well. And I think for those of us who maybe are used to feeling secure in life, this doesn't come off as such a big deal. But for the marginalized, the minority, the one who feels underprivileged or constantly on the outside looking in, this is a big deal, a big encouragement, a big affirmation. Security in Christ is not a matter of personal confidence or achievement or swagger or success, but rather what Christ has achieved for us. Uh, If there is a criteria that's maybe worth looking at in terms of one's association with Christ, Paul mentions the track record, the pattern of having built up. He says, "Look look at how we were when we were with you. Look at the evidence. We were invested in you. We were invested in building you up, not tearing you down. That's our track record. That's our character. That's our practice. 
In fact, if there's anyone in the New Testament that, that the New Testament is particularly critical of, it is anyone who would sow discord and disunity in the church. Titus 3.9 has these stinging words. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time, and after that have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. I wonder which warning, what number warning Paul is on for these false apostles. Is this one? Is this two? Are we three strikes and you're out? Where are we here? Um, We run into these people around us. You ever know that person who's just brimming with confidence? More passion than truth, right? More pride than wisdom, and you get in arguments with them, and you walk away and thinking, why did I do that again? I know better. This is the person who you know, may not be right, but they're never in doubt. We have an expression in our house that we kind of jokingly refer to from time to time. I read it in a book a while back where this um, pastor was sort of lamenting about one of these little traps that he had fallen into, and his expression was, like a fool, I stood there and argued with her. There's just some arguments you're not going to win even if you win. You know, you're just, they're just a waste of time. And so Paul basically warns them, hey, don't fall prey to this. He's coming back sort of to knock some heads together. Don't mistake him for a weakling. He's in control of his strength. The boldness they see in his letter, he's willing to deploy in person. And notice too, I think at the center of this discussion is the issue of authority and what one does with it. Paul doesn't mind claiming his authority. It's not a wrong thing to utilize one's authority. And he also sees his authority as something that's derived from God, used to build others up. Fourthly here, Christian leaders understand God's call upon their life. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves They are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond our proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of God's service God himself has assigned to us. That's an important line there. A sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about the work already done in someone else's territory. But let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Lots of stuff going on here. Uh, Paul basically shows us that a good Christian leader is able to discipline themselves to serve in a particular sphere based upon God's calling on their life, not simply their initiative or interest, but recognizing what God has done for them. Paul was tasked by God to be a minister to the Gentiles. He saw the Corinthians as a beachhead for future and ongoing ministry. That's why he didn't want to lose them. It wasn't his pride that was threatened. It was the mission God had called him to. And Paul has a clear sense of what it was. And any leader who's going to be faithful to God needs to have a clear sense of what God has called them to. There is a uh, Christian leadership book that I try to read about every year 
Uh, it's written by Dave Kraft. Uh, it's called Leaders Who Last. I've noted it in your books here, or in your notes here. And he has this one particular line in that book that gets me every time I read it. It says, he who is available to everyone isn't much good to anyone. And that's a temptation for all of us at leaders. As opportunities come up, we have to recognize that not every opportunity is a calling, but to have a clear sense of what God has called us to in our life and to commit ourselves to that. As we grow in our leadership, we should have a clearer sense of that unique and specific lane, and it should get more and more precise. And we might even have to make decisions about things that we let go so that we are fulfilling God's calling upon our life and serving Him faithfully. I'm going to bring this to a close. I don't want to be accused of being talking anyone to death here. I don't want a bunch of eutychuses on my hands. But let me close with this. Anyone who accepts the mantle of leadership accepts also the burden of criticism. The only security that we really have that really matters is our security in Christ as leaders and in His calling utilizing the spiritual weapons that he has given to us, which are not weak and anemic weapons. If we're going to accomplish the mission of God, we'll do it with the methods of God. Let's pray. Father, I'm staring at a room full of leaders in this community. Leaders in their own homes, in their neighborhood, at their school, their place of business, place that they volunteer, the boards that they're on. And I pray, Lord, that we would never get sidetracked away from the mission of God and the methods of God. While the world is looking for what is new and novel, what is relevant, what is easy, may we discipline ourselves to those true things. May we remember the great example of Christ our Lord, the greatest leader in the history of the world with followers two millennia later. May we remember his humility and his service and be willing to accept the costs for leading in that manner. For our aim is not self-promotion, but the promotion of Christ and of his gospel and of his kingdom to come. We pray in his name. Amen.